All right, people, let's gather ourselves and look respectable. If I ever come to church and I am not able to be moved by the presence of God, somebody take me out back and put me out of my misery. Amen? Well, give me a chance to repent because I'm probably in a bad place. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. A lot of sniffling going on in this place. Where was that doing that at? We're trying to get to 19, but I don't want to start there. Let's get it all in context. This is actually about sexual immorality, but you'll see why we're doing this here in a second. It says in verse 12, All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined by a prostitute becomes one in body with her? We read the whole context, Amen. For when it is written, the two shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's one of those verses that a lot of times we get right to the, your body is a temple, and I, I never like taking anything out of context and just saying your body is a temple. It was actually used in reference to sexual immorality and how that's a sin against your own body. Um, and I'm not going to go too much into that because I really wanted to talk about the temple part of it. As you guys know, we've been doing a three-part series on the altar, the tabernacle, and the temple, and today we're to the temple. And by that I mean I cut off a whole lot of parts about the altar, a whole lot of parts about the tabernacle. And when I was doing this morning, I was like, I've got to cut off a whole lot of parts about the temple too because if I preached everything I wanted to preach, well, we'd be here a long, long time. Um, if everybody brought some dinner, we can do that one day. I hope to kind of teach you some things that maybe you haven't seen in the Word today. The Lord is really just, we've had a time this week, he and I. It's, it's been busy and I like that. Um, I also had a lot of drive time, so I had a lot of time to talk to the Lord um, I know that he said two things about our church. He said that we're going to equip our church for the journey and we're going to fix the tabernacle before we build a temple. There's a spiritual and physical component to that. When God says to me, fix your tabernacle, he's not just saying paint the walls of the church, which thank God we painted the walls of the church because every morning I come in to pray and on that back wall there's a map of the Nile River and I'm starting to make stories up about, you know, maybe he'll put an X somewhere on it and there was a treasure there somewhere along that. But Finally, it's kind of painted and things are coming together and there's a spiritual significance that we as a church are beginning to transition. We're beginning to transition out of a tabernacle phase into a temple phase, that God is doing something with us that is new and he's bringing us to a place that is new and it's going to be different than the place that we have been in. But by way of review, because I like to review, make sure you know, you remember what we said last week. Uh, we talked about the altar. The altar is a place where you heard from God and it changed your life. Um, more and more people in the church are beginning to realize salvation is not an experience. 
Did you ever? Salvation is not an experience. We used, to, we used to, everybody knew their birth date, right? Your birthday in Christ was the day you were saved. Now, I wasn't keeping records at that point, so I really only know that it was in June of 1988, um, late June of 1988, that I received the Lord. I don't have the exact day that was. But it was at a camp meeting. We were, we were having a time. But the problem is, is a lot of times people take that date and they make that date something sacred. That date is only sacred if there's something after that date, right? If I, if I had an anniversary the first time I met Kristen, but then we never really hung out after that, well, that anniversary wouldn't be super important, would it? It's only an important date because she and I have spent 21 years together going through thick and thin and on a journey and things like that. Salvation was never meant to be a point in time, right? As for every time the Bible says you will be saved, it uses the word you are being saved a lot more right? The salvation isn't a, okay, you know, I've checked it off, I'm, I'm good. It's a, when you're walking with Christ, you're saved not only from the wrath to come, not only from God's wrath, but your whole life changes. The trajectory of your life changes. What you go through in life changes because you're walking through it with Christ, and it's never meant to be a single point in time. <laughs> you, uh, when you make it out of that place, it becomes your line in the sand, and following God requires a sacrifice. The reason you build an altar is because there's something you've got to put on it, right? If you brought everything from your old life in, then what you did bears no resemblance to biblical discipleship, amen? If everything you have in your life now is exactly what you had in your life before you came to know Christ, then you missed something. Go back to that altar and figure out what it was you were supposed to get there. There was something you were supposed to put on the altar, and it was supposed to change, and you were supposed to come away with that a different person. If you haven't, get back there. It's that easy. It's still there. That's the thing about Bethel, the place that they kept building the altars at is Bethel. Every time somebody crossed it, they end up building an altar there, it seems like, right? That place is still there. God is still waiting for you. Now, your tabernacle is how you know God is with you in the wilderness. At some point, we start wandering, don't we? I, I like, um, it, anybody knows I'm kind of a nerd in some of these things. I, I have a lot of interest in that area. And one of my favorite J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien quotes is, not all who wander are lost, right? That there's a sense in that there's a lot of wandering we do in our lives, but it's not because we're lost. It's because we know we weren't supposed to be there, and we haven't quite figured out where he, the next place is. We just know we got to get out of that place so that God can get us to the next place. I was talking to somebody this week who was struggling with a career change, and he was like, do you think the Lord will bless me if I, if I just kind of, you know, go to this place and just kind of leave everything behind and go there? And I said, the Lord's going to bless you no matter what you do. But what you got to figure out is that that's the place you're supposed to go to, because if it is, don't worry about the jobs. Don't worry about the other stuff. If that's where he's calling you to, he'll figure that out. And if you're, in this, if you're in a situation now where you're always thinking about your current situation, you can't see your present situation, it, it's, it's hard to break off from that, isn't it? It's like if you're sitting in Kentucky and God's like, go to northern Illinois, and you're like, oh, Lord, I'm not, I'm not hearing you. There was, there's got to be something, right? But at some point, and Kristen and I, have, I've done that to her a couple times in her lives, and she always appreciates it when I come home and say, hey, we're going to leave everything behind and move to a new place. God's called us to minister, right? That's, that's her favorite part of, the, part of the cycle. Now, you build your ark when you're in the wilderness. What's in the ark of testimony? God's word for you, right? The Ten Commandments were in the ark of the covenant. That's God's word that he's put in your heart. Not just God's written word, but the word that you know God has spoken to you. If you in your life do not have a word that you can say, God has spoken to me this. I know this is from the Lord and it is something. It's part of me. It's what I'm called to do. It's what I'm called to be. If you don't have that, again, get back to that place. Get back to that altar until you hear from God, right? Second thing, you put in what nurtures your spirit, right? The manna was in the ark, right? Because that's what keeps them going in the wilderness. You can be in the wilderness a long time, but you can't be without food and water for a long time, can you? 
You've got to connect yourself to things that nourish your soul. We put a lot of bad media into our souls nowadays, right? Because we're bombarded with it. Angry voices and, and you know, you, you friend somebody on Facebook because you think, hey, they're pretty nice. The next thing you know, they're just complaining 24-7 about everything and everybody. And you're like, I can't take all that into my spirit. Sometimes Kristen's talking and Kristen is a great discerner. So she sees all these things I don't see. And sometimes she's like, stop, stop. I, I can only take so much. I have to be positive and encouraged, you know, and, and so I have to find those things and sometimes it is her too that also encourages me but you have to connect yourself to those things that encourage your soul that you feed off of right the word of god the way he communicates with you people around you that provide encouragement you should have people around you that speak good things in your life and the last thing was aaron's rod was in the ark and that was the rod that when they were trying to figure out who was going to be the priest they put all the rods into the tabernacle the glory of god comes down on the tabernacle and aaron's rod buds right and so it shows that he's the one meant to lead the priests, right? And so you've got to have your calling from God that you are sure of in your ark because those are the things that are going to get you to your temple area. And today we're going to talk about the temple. Now, I know what you're thinking. If we're going to talk about the temple, we're probably going to talk about Solomon. But we're not going to talk about Solomon. We're going to talk about David. But before we talk about David, we're going to talk about Joshua, and then we're going to go back to Abraham. I'm going to take you through like all the Old Testament. Um, uh, like I said, there's, there is so much to this. I can only give you a small portion of everything that I have studied in the last week or so on this, and I decided to focus in on this one particular thing. So let's start by going to Joshua 15, and I'll get there before you because I marked it in my Bible with my little dangly thingies. When you get there, say, my, you're handsome, Pastor. Thank you, shouldn't have. You're too nice. In Joshua chapter 15, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 63, because the chapter is a whole lot of they took this city and that city and they were here and they were there, six cities with villages and all the different places. As the Jews are coming into the promised land, they're conquering everything, they're taking over and everyone's getting their inheritance. So the tribe of Judah is getting their inheritance, Benjamin's getting their inheritance, uh, Naphtali, all of them are getting their inheritance. But here in verse 63 it says, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So when this was written down, there were still Jebusites hanging out in Jerusalem. Well, who are these Jebusites? See, here's the thing about getting to where you're going to go with your temple, is that your temple might not be empty when you get there. You might have some Jebusites to drive out. Now, here's the interesting thing about Jebusites that I did not know until this week. This is what I was telling Josh. I said, Josh, you might even learn something today because I didn't even know this stuff. But this is one of those things that because of archaeology and some of the things they've dug up, they've found. And that is if we go back to Genesis. I know you're thinking, what, Pastor? Where are we going? Genesis chapter 15, 14. I have 15 written down, but it's 14. As you guys have probably figured out, I write down the wrong numbers a lot. So Genesis chapter 14, starting at verse 17, tell you this little story here. Um, Abraham, his nephew Lot, had been captured. Lot was living near Sodom, which we already know what kind of place Sodom and Gomorrah was at. And Lot was hanging around there, and because he was hanging around there... Um, Sodom got attacked, and Lot was taken away prisoner. As it happens, Lot had a very powerful uncle named Abraham, right? And so Abraham gathers all his men, all his forces. He chases down the ones that captured Lot, wipes them out, takes everything back. And here it says, after his return from the defeat of the, of the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And that is El Elo, El Elio. How do I say that, Lynn? Oh, never mind. <laughs> it's, it's E-L... I have it in my notes if I could read. L, yeah, E-L-Y-O-N. It's Lord Most High is who he serves. So Melchizedek kind of comes out of nowhere here. He's not mentioned anywhere else in Genesis. Abraham just had this big battle. He wins the battle. He's got all these spoils of war. And on his way back, he runs into the king of Sodom and this guy named Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, right? And we don't know anything about him. In fact, the writer of Hebrews compares him to Christ and that he was kind of without beginning and without end, that he kind of just shows up on the scene out of nowhere. Well, the thing we know about Melchizedek now is because of the way his name is spelled, Melchizedek was most likely the king of Jebusites. Now, here's the interesting thing about Melchizedek. When he meets Abraham here, they are both serving the God Most High. Right now, keep in mind, this is Abraham. So there's, there's no, there's no uh, book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's nothing, none of that has been written yet. God is still establishing his covenant with Abraham. He's still calling him out of where he's supposed to be. And Abraham's just wandering around, listening to the voice of the Lord, doing what God says, you know, trying to get there. He's, he's becoming the father of many, right? He doesn't even have his son Isaac at this point, right? Which is probably why he rescued Lot, because at this point he doesn't know what's going to happen. And he runs into this guy, Melchizedek, who serves God most high. So they're serving the same God at this point. But see, something happens to the descendants of Melchizedek that doesn't happen to the descendants of Abraham. Because the descendants of Abraham are Isaac, Jacob, who becomes Israel, and then out of Israel becomes the 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes go into 400 years of captivity in Egypt, and they come out of Egypt, and they spend 40 years in the wilderness, and then they finally get out of 40 years in the wilderness, and they show up in the promised land, and guess who's already there? Jebusites, Right? Same guy that knew Abraham way back here in Genesis, by the time they go through this big process of all the things you see in the plagues and pharaohs and red seas and all these sorts of things, you know, fire by day, cloud by night, they finally get to the place, the promised land, and guess who's already there? Jebusites. And I kind of find it funny because in a way the Jebusites are sort of the little brother, right? Or maybe even the older brother. Anyone ever had a family member that doesn't let you forget where you're from, right? That's kind of the Jebusites. But the difference between the Jebusites and the Israelites is that the Jebusites became like all the other Canaanites. In fact, when they get numbered, when they come back, they're just one and the other, one, you know, just another set of Canaanites. What this means is that they've taken on the idolatry, they've taken on the pagan rituals of those in Canaan. Do you see now why God was telling Israel not to be like those that are around you? Because at one point, Melchizedek was serving God Most High. But now here in Canaan, the Jebusites become just another Canaan land. And when archaeologically we go and dig up where they were at, there's no difference between them and the other Canaanite peoples. They served the same gods as the Canaanites. They performed the same rituals as the Canaanites. They completely lost their way and became lost in just sort of that morass. But the one thing they still had was the high ground because Jerusalem was set on the hill. In fact, if you look at a map of Israel, it's kind of backed up towards the hilly country. So instead of the flat places like Megiddo or the Valley of Jezreel, where you can kind of sweep in and drive some people out, they kind of had some fortifications. They had some things built up. So while they drove everybody else out of the promised land, couldn't get out the Jebusites. You know, have you ever come into church and someone was just sitting in your seat? And so you're like, hey, yeah, that's a nice seat you got there. That's, that's usually my seat. And I'm sure it's a comfortable seat for you, but it is usually where I sit, right? Like, like have you ever come into your house? Uh, would you ever come to your house and your wife's got company over and, so, and one of the companies sitting in the chair you would sit in, right? 
and you're just kind of waiting for them to get up because, hey, that's, that's my chair, you know, you're, that's, that's right? Well, Israel's kind of standing around looking at the Jebusites. Well, that's kind of the promised land. You're kind of, kind of in our spot, guys. And they're like, we don't care. In fact, I, I love how when David finally runs into the Jebusites, let's move over that way. Let me look at where I got it in my notes here. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, I marked all these because I knew I was going to be, we're, we're chewing through a lot of real estate as far as the Bible is concerned. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 5, and David has been anointed king. So keep in mind, way back here in the book of Joshua, Jebusites are occupying Jerusalem. And you go through Judges and Ruth, and you go through 1 Samuel, and now we're all the way to 2 Samuel, right? So they've gone through Samson and Ehud and everybody in the book of Judges, Deborah and Barak and all those guys, right? They've gone through all the time of Samuel. They finally get to the point where David's anointed king, and it says in verse 5, and at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. So at this point, David is still ruling over Jerusalem as their king, or over Israel as their king, but he doesn't have possession of Jerusalem. So for seven years, he hangs out in Hebron. And it says, and at, Jer- at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So in verse 6, it says, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Always the Jebusites, right? And the inhabitants of the land who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Nah, David, you You know, they're all just making faces at him, you know, probably making the armpit noises or whatever, standing up on the walls. You can't get in here. David didn't have siege engines. You know, that was the thing about back then. Nowadays, we have bulldozers and airplanes and helicopters. Back then, you build a wall tall enough, and it's really hard to get over that wall, right? Especially if the person on the other side of that wall has a pointy stick right? It doesn't take a whole lot to defend a wall because a a warrior could be in all his gear and armor and he could walk up to the wall and they literally just need a big rock to drop on you and they win, right? Like you could have all the training in the world. You could be Chuck Norris, you could be Liam Neeson, you could be whoever. All they needed was one big rock, right? And you're done. Drop it on your head, crack your skull, you're, you're done, you're over, right? So they just sit up in their wall and they're making faces at David. Even our blind and our lame could toss a rock over on your guys. There's no way you're getting into the city, you don't tell David that, right? That's not the kind of guy David is. David's like, well, you're right. I guess I'll just go ahead and leave Jerusalem in your hands. No, what does it say? It says, go ahead and flip to the next verse because I'm not looking about it. Okay. That is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Oh, he's mad. I've never told anybody I hate you with my soul, right? I don't know if I hate you with my soul. But these guys were hated by his soul because they're sitting there taunting him on the wall. You're not getting into this city, David. And so David says, head up the water shaft and attack these lame and blind. And therefore, it is said, the lame and the blind (laughs) shall not come into the house. But David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And he built the city all around it from from the Milo onward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So the plan of attack was there was a water shaft, right? Because no matter how big your city is, if you don't have water inside the city, you can only stay in there so long. There was a spring they found. They found a way up the spring. They get in there. They take over the city. So the Jebusites are gone forever at this point, right? Not so much. There may be, there may be people in your altar stage that will hinder when you try to move on, right? I am not in my notes anywhere. 
let's go back to this page, okay? Abraham Melchizedek. David knew he was supposed to be in Jerusalem. See, the thing about Jerusalem is it kind of sits up from everything around it, right, Lynn? It's kind of a city on a hill, right? Everything around. When they talk about going up to the temple of the Lord, you were literally going up to the temple of the Lord. David knew he was supposed to be here, but here's this old enemy that feels like it's their place, and they're going to stay there no matter what David wants to do. Growth always means change, and I don't have a good transition for that. That's what I'm missing is my transition sentence. Any of you guys that are ever going to do homiletics, Jake, right? You can have a good transition sentence when you move between ideas. This isn't one. (laughs) David could have stayed in his old capital. He didn't need Jerusalem to rule Israel, but he knew it was a place he was called to, right? Because when he gets there, he lives there. I mean, he makes it the city of David. Not only that, but... I almost feel like that particular piece of real estate has a special call on it. If God's ever called a piece of earth, I think Jerusalem has a call of God on it, right? There's just something about that city. It's always causing trouble. People are always fighting over it, right? There's always conflict around it. But David knew that he had to get into the city. He had to change his situation. Change is not our burden. It's our privilege. Did you know that change is how you know you've moved from life to death? Israel had changed for the better. The Jebusites had changed for the worse. Oh, that's, that was in the other part. That's why I was missing that. Okay. David was anointed king. Jebusites didn't care. You've got to become king of a place you thought you couldn't conquer. And this is important because this is one of those things God wants to say to somebody. That God didn't call you to do what you have the ability to do. David had no siege engines, he had no weapons of war, he had no way to get over the wall, he had no way to get in there. God has not called you to do something you can do, right? Casey's pretty smart. God has called you to do more than your intelligence will allow you to do. Did you know that? Did you know that? He has. Matt's pretty strong, right? Matt, do you know God's called you to do something where your strength won't be enough? I always say guys always try, we always try to solve our problem with strength, right? Something's in our way, we push it, right? We shove it, we, we're, we're, you know, that's, we're guys, strong like ox, smart like tree, right? That's us. Do you know God's going to call you to do things that what you have isn't going to work? That what you know to do isn't going to get you there? Do you know sometimes he tells me to do things in this church, and I'm like, God, I am not trained, qualified, or have any idea how you want that to happen. And he's like, good. Good, that's, that's what I want. Because if I could do it, how would he get the glory? If it was something I could accomplish, then why would I need God in that? Why would I need an anointing to be in a place if I were already big enough, smart enough, strong enough, and gosh darn it, people like me enough to do it, right? God wants to call you to do something that you don't have the ability to do. But we get afraid when we see the big walls, when we have people taunting us, telling us we can't do it, when people are standing in our way and saying you're not good enough, you don't have the talent, there are other people that are better than you at this, don't you bother doing it, and that's what we're hearing, and then we leave the call of God on the table because we're too afraid to pick it up. But God is calling you to do something that you don't have the ability to do. He's just mean like that, amen? Your temple time will be a time of opposition. And just because you're building your temple doesn't mean you won't mess it up. This is another interesting little thing. Let's go to 1 Chronicles 21. 
I think, I think a lot of you will know this story. I'm going to skip around all through the chapter, but we'll start at verse 1, where it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Well, why is that a problem? Because God had told Abraham, your seed, your seed will be like sands on the shore, stars in the sky, uncountable, innumerable. There'll be too many of them. And David's like, I should count them. I should number them. I should see how many of them there are. Right? Now, David is anointed to be king. He's in the place. He's taken over Jerusalem. No temple has been built as of yet. In fact, we'll see that here in a second. He tells Joab, hey, Joab, I want you to go out and count everybody. And Joab's like, are you sure? And he's like, yes, Joab, I want you to number every person in Israel so I know how many people I have. Now, see, here's this thing. Remember last week, I said, nobody that ever goes out to get into idolatry does so without thinking they're trying to help God right? People get into idolatry and idols all the time because they think what they're doing is helping God. Like God needs kind of a helping hand on this. He needs, he needs a particular kind of my effort or he's not going to get this job done. I know he said he could do it, but I'm going to go ahead and help him out, right? If you guys remember the story when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel and it's on an ox cart and the ox cart stumbles and Uzziah's like, I'll help you, God. I'll put my hand on your Ark and God strikes him right then, right? David thought he was going to give God a hand. He's going to number Israel. He's going to make the place stronger by knowing how many resources he can draw on, how many people he has, how many people he's king over. How does he know how called he is unless he knows how many people he's over, right? So Joab tries to talk him out of it. And you know what? A lot of times if your friends are trying to talk you out of something, you should probably, you know, you should have friends that you listen to. Kristen's the one that usually tells me when I'm, you know, gone a little crazy. And she's like, whoa, cowboy, Right? So Joab goes out and does it, but I like in verse 6 it says, but he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to him. He knew what he was doing was not what God wanted. So Joab doesn't count everybody. So technically he's not doing what David wanted, but he's doing enough of it so David thinks he is because Joab doesn't want to be the one responsible. Well, guess how this goes for David. A prophet comes to David, as prophets tend to do to David when David does something wrong. It says, David, you messed up. You weren't supposed to number the people. You numbered the people, so I'm going to give you a choice. You can either have uh, three years of famine, three years of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemy overtakes you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout the territory of Israel. So he says you can either go through a long period of famine, a short period of losing every battle you fight, or you can have three days of the Lord dealing with it with the angel of the Lord. And so David says, well... Of the three, God's the only one I have a chance of being merciful, of, of him being merciful to me, right? So he says, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the angel of the Lord comes, and pestilence comes, and 70,000 Israelites die. And what really bothers me about this is that was 70,000 people who had nothing to do with the sin of David. But here's something about sin, is that sin is never your own. We think that we can sin in secret. We think that we can kind of keep secret things to ourselves. But it always, always, always affects everybody over whom you have an influence. There's no, there's no, there's no two ways about that. I wish it weren't true. I wish you could sin and it was just on you and you stood before God and you could say, I'm sorry for what I did. But you're not just saying, God, sorry for what I did because then I have to apologize to my kids. I'm sorry I wasn't the dad I was supposed to be because at that point in my life I was bound in sin or I wasn't the husband I was supposed to be because I couldn't see where I was supposed to go because my heart had sin in it or I wasn't the pastor I was supposed to be because even though it seemed like a small thing to me, when I stopped listening to the Lord on that thing, I led the church astray. 
No sin ever affects just you. It affects anyone who cares about you or who's around you. It affects everyone. So 70,000 people die in this plague. And then it says, And the angel of the Lord was standing on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Always the Jebusites. Now here's the funny thing about him owning that threshing floor is that didn't David drive them out of Jerusalem? Didn't he take the city and wipe them out? No, no. He, he, he did what he had to do to conquer who he had to conquer, but he left the Jebusites there. And so here the angel of the Lord is destroying the land and the angel literally stops on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And it says, and David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So right there at this threshing floor, there's the angel of the Lord standing, sword drawn out. The pestilence has gone through the land. It's Jerusalem's turn is what it is. And David actually has this open vision of the angel of the Lord standing there with his sword drawn right over top of this threshing floor. So what does he do? He goes to a prophet. <laughs> Gad, and Gad says, this is what you've got to do. You've got to go and build an altar in that place, and you've got to sacrifice to the Lord at that place. I like to think that this represents in us that one place where even though we have our life together, we leave some things there because it's easier to leave them there than it is to deal with them. So even though we know we should deal with it, we set it aside and we set it aside and we just keep ignoring it until finally something happens so catastrophic that we can't take our eyes off that once unsurrendered area in our life and now we have to deal with it because here's the angel of the Lord standing there, flaming sword in hand. You know that now I deal with it or I die and here it is, and he's got to go build an altar, but he doesn't own the land. He's got to go build the altar on. So he goes to Ornan, and he says, Ornan, I need to build an altar on this site. And Ornan can see the angel too, which is great, because he's like, I will give you the land. This is your land. I do not want the land with the angel of death standing over it. Thank you, right? I would imagine real estate-wise, that shoots your property value way down. It's a nice house, but there's an angel of death in the living room. You'll have to walk around him, right? But David doesn't do that because David understands now what this means. And David says, no, I'm not going to give my God anything that didn't cost me something. So he pays him full retail price for every single thing. Pays him, I think, 500 shekels of gold in order to take that one last place. Well, here's the thing. He builds an altar there on the threshing floor. And that altar is in a place called Mount Moriah. And that altar is the very first brick of the temple of God. When he builds the temple, he builds it on this plot of land, on the threshing floor where the angel stood. Now, see, the thing is, is David wasn't allowed to build the temple, was he? Because he was a man of blood. He, he'd, he'd killed many, many people in battle. And God said, you're not the one to build my temple. And when I read that, I thought, how many of us would build it anyway? God says, David, you're not the one to build this. I'm going to save it for somebody else. And I'll be like, well, I'll go ahead and start building it, God, and you just say when to stop. I've had people ask me questions sometimes. They're like, they're like, hey, pastor, I've got things going on in my life and this, and I've got, let's say I've got options A and B, and option A is this, and option B is that, and I'll be like, well, you know, the Bible really speaks about option A not being a good thing, and really the Lord seems to be drawing you away from option A, and, and I really feel like option A is going to lead you to a bad place. And they're like, you're right, I will choose option A. That's good. <laughs> Right? And so he tells David, he tells David, 
don't build the temple. And David actually listens, which I'm glad because if he was any kind of preacher, he would just say, you know, well, God said something about a temple and I'm just going to go ahead and start building until he tells. So David doesn't, but that doesn't mean David doesn't do anything about the temple because not only does he buy the plot of land, but all the spoils from all the wars that he's fought, all the places he's conquered, all those things, you know, he saves those up for his son Solomon so that when it's time to build the temple, he takes everything in his life that he has earned up to that point and he puts it into the house of God. And he builds it upon the place that cost him the most. Amen? That which opposes you now can be made to serve you later. The angel stops at Mount Moriah. He builds the altar there. And look in 1 Kings chapter 9. I know what you're thinking. We've seen the end of the Jebusites, right? 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 20, it says, all the people, this is after Solomon has built the temple, right? He's consecrated the house. The Lord has appeared to him. He's been given great wisdom. Everything is going Solomon's way. And it says, all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, right? who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. They couldn't get rid of them. These Solomon drafted to be slaves, so they are to this day. So he never, because the Israel law said you could not enslave your own, and we won't get into all the evils of slavery because that's, slavery then was not like it is, like it was in the American South. But I will tell you this, we'll just take this point, and that is that the thing that once tormented them was made to serve them. That the reason, I heard somebody say this weekend that, you know, God tests you because he wants to find out who you are. And I thought, that's baloney. God knows who I am. Well, maybe so I can find out who I am. Well, no, because that's not it either. You know why God lets you go through tests? Because they make you what you are. See, (laughs) the difference between the Jebusites and the Israelites Is it while the Jebusites just kind of stayed in the land, grew their crops, had a good time, they were prosperous, they had everything going for them. Israel went through famine, went into a land where they were strangers. For 400 years, they were kept in in slavery. They were abused. They were beaten. They went through the wilderness where if God didn't feed them, they would literally starve to death. They had to follow the hand of God or fall where they stood. And then at the end of that, they finally got to the promised land as people who knew how to take over a promised land. And the Jebusites just became like one of the crowd. They just became like one more person because no real, no real persecution ever came their way. No real trial ever came at them. There was no reason. Did you know that in the first temple, there was no longing for a Messiah? Think about that. In Solomon's temple, there was no longing for a second coming or for the coming of the Messiah. They only started wanting the Messiah when they were taken captive into Babylon. In Solomon's temple, they had the riches. They had everything taken care of for them. They were in a place of plenty. There was no reason to want God to come and walk among them because that was his dwelling place and that's where they went to meet him. But you know what happened to the temple? 1 Chronicles I like Hezekiah. Hezekiah did a lot of great things in his life. I may have put down the wrong verse here, didn't I? Since there, yeah, there's, there's an, that's not the verse I'm looking for, though.
2 Kings 20. Sorry, 2 Kings 20. Hezekiah was a, com- was a contemporary of Isaiah the prophet. He was a good king. He followed the Lord. But it says in, ver- in chapter 20, verse 12, it says, At that time, the son of Baladin, the king of Babylon, sent envoys because Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah got better. So the king of Babylon sends envoys to him. And in verse 13, and, and Hezekiah welcomed them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to the king Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And, and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah said, they have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I know. He was so proud of all the things that he had amassed that he brought the invoice in and just showed him, look how rich I am. Look at all the stuff I have. To the Babylonians. (laughs) How do you think that ended for him? Did you know that what God gives you is precious enough that you don't just let anybody in and spoil you? Here's here's another word I I, want to give somebody that you've lived long enough to see your temple plundered. You've lived long enough to have gotten to the place that God called you to be, and you've lived long enough to see somebody come in and rob the house of God in your life. That there are people in this congregation that still deal with a deep-seated cynicism because what happened to them wasn't right wasn't fair. Hezekiah was a good king. He was a good guy. He followed the way of the Lord. He, he, he worshiped the Lord in the temple. He did what he was supposed to do. And yet one person comes in and sees what he has, and that person comes and takes it. The unfortunate things about temples, sometimes I think of the quote by General Patton. General Patton always said that Fixed fortifications were monuments to man's stupidity. And what he meant by that was whenever you set a turret down in one place, you basically told the enemy where to avoid, right? And so any good general would find a way around that. And sometimes when I see our houses of God that we set up churches and we, and we have places where we all come in together, we just tell the enemy where to avoid on a Sunday morning. And while we're in here praising God, there's a world out there that's suffering at his hand because he knows where to avoid and who to attack. And, and that only works for him if we don't leave here and fight back. You know that? That only works for him if, if we don't do something with what we get here. If our walk with God only happens within these four walls, then we don't have a walk with God. We have a father who's only got partial custody of us. He's just got us on weekends. You know, you get to see him every now and then, but the problem with that is he's never really the influence in your life, is he? If you're only seeing him on the weekends, then all you're really doing is you're getting a a little taste of what it would have been like if you were in the right family, but then you get taken back out and put into the world and the world treats you like it treats you because there's no one there for you because your walk with God stays in here. If you don't have a relationship with God that walks with you where you walk, if when people don't recognize in you the call of God and not in some I'm going to preach at you kind of way, but when there's a holy anointing on your life that God has something inside of you that people can't deny that makes them change around you. That there is a glory of God, a kabod, a weight that comes on you that people actually change how they are around you because they understand that you are different from them. There's something about you. 
your Christianity can't do that, then I'm not sure that what you have is the same thing that I see in here. Right? Jebusites look a lot like Israelites. You know what the funny thing about conflicts in the Middle East are? Genetically, they're the same. They have 63 different names for the types of people, but they basically all go back to a common ancestor, and we know that from the Bible, don't we? What was the difference between Israel and everybody around them, though? God chose them, and God set them there. Here's something about temples. I'm going to close with this. Let's go to Mark chapter 11. God designs everything very specifically. Whenever he's talking about building temples and tabernacles, he's never like, take a bunch of wood and whatever you make, I'll bless that, right? He says, make it this many cubits and this many cubits and use this kind of wood and all that. Here's something somebody showed me about Jesus cleansing the temple that I'd never seen before. And I wanted to share it with you because it's about the temple. It says, in 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, you guys probably know the temple, like the tabernacle, had courts, right? You start way back here at the Holy of Holies. You have the most holy place in front of that. Outside, you had the court of the men. Outside that, you had the court of the women, sorry. And outside that, you had the Gentile court. So Gentiles were actually allowed into part of the temple of God there in Jerusalem. But when the money changers moved in, they didn't move into the court of the men or the court of the women, did they? In order to be inside the temple grounds, they took the path of least resistance, and where did they set up at? They set up in the court of the Gentiles. See, there was nothing wrong with the money changing in particular because there was actually a temple tax you were supposed to pay when you came to the temple. There was a specific currency you were supposed to give to the priest as an offering, or they would sell pigeons, or they would sell those sorts of things because if you live 20 miles away, you're not carrying a pigeon with you the whole way, right? You're going to take some money with you, and you're going to go, and you're going to buy a pigeon, and that's how you're going to sacrifice it. So that in and itself wasn't the bad thing. And this is, this is how we know that because I've read over this verse a whole bunch of times and didn't see this. He's quoting from Isaiah and in verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into robbers. They were keeping the Gentiles out of the temple. See, here's the thing about your temple, about your body being a temple, is you're supposed to have a court for Gentiles. Did you know that? You're supposed to have some unsaved, unregenerate, heathen people in your life. And I know some of you are saying, yeah, my kids, right? Um, <laughs> Every temple should have a court for the Gentiles. Every temple should have a place. Now, keep in mind, it's not the Holy of Holies right? It's not the most holy place, but there is a place in every temple where the world is able to see that there is a place where God comes and dwells with man. There is a place where God meets man. They should be in the court of the Gentiles of your life and just be so jealous that you get to go to a house of God on Sunday where he is going to hear your words, where you're going to be in the presence of God, where the things that come out of your mouth are going to fall on the ear of El Shaddai, almighty God, someone with the power and the reason resources to move heaven and earth to change your situation to bring your life up to call you out of where you are and set you on a better place and make something out of you and if they don't see that then you haven't finished your temple yet 
because until they can see that there is a God who wants to speak to you, they're not going to believe there's a God that wants to speak to them. If they can't look at a Christian and say, God is doing something in that life, how do I get that? Man, we don't get there by telling them about all the rules they broke, do we? Man, no one's ever been won, no one's ever been won to Christ by figuring out how wretched they were because someone else told them. People come to Christ when they see something in the life of Christ. You know what? You, if there's a line outside a club, people will get in that line just because there's a line. I was in the military. If you saw a line, you stood in it, right? There must be something in the line. There's got to be something in us that attracts people to Christ. I guess it makes me sad because I know a lot of times we don't have the kinds of relationships with God because we get stuck in the whole wilderness stage where God's still trying to keep us from complaining and keeping us from being mean to people and keep us from rebelling against them. And we're always caught in that stage. and We never get to the place in the temple where there's a holy of holies, where we meet with God, where we feel refreshed by him, where we feel like he's putting something into our spirit, where like we feel like even if the whole world comes against me, me and God, that's all I need. I will stand on this rock and I will fight the gates of hell because I know that greater that is he that is in me than greater than he that is in the world. They need to see that in us. Let's all stand if you come to the piano for me. Or guitar, whatever instrument you guys want to pick up. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just one moment. I just want you to be in a place where who's beside you isn't important, where who's in front of you isn't important, where who's behind you isn't important. 